How are you doing? Good. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 19. It was where we're going to land. Before we get there, just a couple quick things. Um, this evening, this evening, what are you doing? N- nothing. You're going to the Staples. Yes. So um, if you haven't heard, we are having a the second annual, let me see if I get this right, uh, Chili... Hayride Chili Chow Down, Throw Down, yes. Uh, so it's just going to be all things fall, pumpkins, white girls, all of it. It's going to be there. Um, so make sure you get like your Instagram ready for you can throw leaves up and then you can go like dance through the leaves. Like, uh, yeah, uh, sorry. Let me, let, me, let me take a step back real quick. Uh, I, am, I did a wedding this weekend and my dad and I drove up from Carrollton this morning um, with not much sleep. Um, so you're going to get it today. Just get ready. If I say anything totally inappropriate, just, just go with it. There's grace for that. Um, so anyways, tonight, 5 o'clock, and you're going to hear more announcements about that in a minute. But um, there. Uh, so 5 o'clock, make sure you be there. Um, there's some things you can bring, some more stuff like that. But seriously, it's just going to be a great time. Um, I know that as we are growing as a church that we don't necessarily know one another that well. And so this is a perfect time for us just to come hang out together and do some life together um, over fires and chili and s'mores and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, secondly, this is something that we've been talking about often, um, just so you guys kind of keep it in front of you. Um, we have planted the Branch Church Milledgeville. So in uh, seven minutes, they're going to start their gathering. And, and so the goal is that we continue to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. Uh, but one of the things that Kyle really helped us to understand, Kyle's the pastor we sent out, um, was that we, we put multiplication in everything we do except for preaching, except for this time, that we're not really doing a good job of raising up guys and, and sending them out. So um, the elders have decided for this semester, just kind of experiment, that I would preach for three weeks and then I would hand it off for two weeks and then I'd preach for three weeks and two weeks and three weeks and two weeks to try to raise up men that we can then send out. So I'm um, starting next week, Dylan, who's sitting right there, who's already starting to sweat profusely, um, is going to be teaching for us the next two weeks. Um, phenomenal. The way that his brain is wired is nowhere near the way my brain is wired. Um, so it's a good treat. I, I love the way he teaches and the way he approaches the text. So uh, make sure you come support him, encourage him in that because this is not, I know I make this look so easy because I'm just that good, but it's not as easy as it seems. So um, that being said, Luke chapter 19. Now, one of the things that we value here, just so you know, is honesty and transparency and vulnerability. And, and so uh, basically what I'm saying is don't lie to me. So I'm about to ask you a question. Don't be a liar. You ready? Who bought lottery tickets this last week? There's a bunch of pagan liars going on right now. I know there's more than four people in this room bought lottery tickets. So let me try this one more time or else I'm not even going to preach for you fools. Who bought lottery tickets this week? Four people. All right. So five, I bought one. All right. Your pastor bought a lottery ticket. You can leave now if you want to, that I am a sinner. It was $1.6 billion though, guys. I mean, I have a limit, right? Like if it gets to a billion dollars, I don't care what it is, I'm going to throw two bucks in the pot. Uh, Because I mean, the the walk away of that is over $900 million. And I just want to give back to the Lord. That's what I want to do with this money is... (laughs) Lord, this is yours, whatever you want, take it, right? Do you know how much, the av- or how much in 2014, the last statistic I could find, how much Americans spend on lottery tickets every year, or based on 2014? 
$70 billion with a B, 70 billion. So analytically, statistically, you guys are liars. There's more people of $70 billion go into it. But here's, here's what we're after, right? I mean, it's, it's just this peace that if I get more money that the American is after, if I get more money, then I'm going to have more peace and life is going to be how I want it to be. Peace is defined this way, a freedom from disturbance, quiet, and tranquility. So we buy into this lottery system. We, we spend $70 billion because we're hoping that with more money is going to come more peace. We forget about Biggie Smalls and more money, more problems, because we think more money is going to bring more peace. But, but it's not just money, right? I mean, we could do all of this. We could look at clothes. We could look at food. We could look at every industry possible that we sell money into things because we want peace back. We're hoping for peace. And so this morning, that's all that we're going to be surrounded by is Peace. What does it look like for us to gain peace? What does it look like for us to have peace? Because if we go back to Luke chapter 2, which you don't have to do now, one of the things that was prophesied is that Jesus is coming for peace, that peace is coming through Jesus' birth. So, so now we get to the end of chapter or end of Luke and we get to see what does this peace really look like. So Luke 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. Now, this heading that you'll see, which in, 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 if I remember, I'll come back to, I kind of have a hard, I don't, I have a hard time with the triumphal entry. If I was writing this part, I would say the humble entry, because what we're going to see is it was very short of triumphal. Verse 28, and when he had said these things, being Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of of the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you'll be entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who, went, uh, were, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners came to him and said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it, verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, or they had seen. Verse 38, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so let us pray as we dive into this. Father, would you speak to us this morning? God, we, we are all walking into this room with distractions and thoughts and fears and anxieties and worries. God, we, we need a word from you. Father, we, we desperately long to hear from you this morning. And so God, I just pray that no matter what we are going through, no matter what uh, thoughts are running through our minds right now, God, that you would just get rid of that so that we could focus solely on you. That's your name we pray. Amen. 
Now, we have to kind of do some, some ordering here to understand where we are. Uh, because typically, when you guys have, raise your hand if you grew up in church. Okay, so you heard this sermon, this text, taught almost every year, but it's always on Palm Sunday, right? Right? So we, we hear this talk, and then the next week Jesus comes, and, and so we hear all this story before, but what, this morning what we're trying to do is, listen, if we're teaching this in November, October, if we're teaching this in October, not Palm Sunday, where we feel like we have to say this, let's objectively look at what's happening so that we can see what Jesus is trying to teach us. Um, because a few weeks ago, before this story, and Jesus had healed Lazarus from the dead. I think we taught that Ricky, is Ricky in here? No. He taught that months ago that Jesus had raised Lazarus. And from that point forward, Jesus' fame in all of this area was going crazy. Everyone was trying to get into Jesus. I mean, you hear that a dead man was dead. Uh, the King James Version said, he stinketh. And then he raises out from the grave. Because of this guy, Jesus, you're going to want to find out what's going on. So his popularity went through the roof. And then we covered um, last or two Sundays ago the story of Zacchaeus and how the crowds were keeping Jesus away from Zacchaeus, but he stopped everything, brought Zacchaeus there and said, no, no, listen, I want to talk to you. I value you. But, but we saw there that the crowds, the ones that were closest to Jesus, were actually keeping the, the Zacchaeus away from Jesus. And that led him into the teaching that we covered last week about the wicked servant. And what does it look like for us? Are we either faithful, or are we false, are we fake believers, or are we foes? And this theme continues on. The crowd that were keeping people from Jesus that were supposed to be bringing people to Jesus, this false servant, this fake believer, this fake Christian that looks and smells and acts like a believer but actually wasn't. So we're having to keep this mindset. Luke is keeping this mindset for us as we're going into this text this morning. Um, so here's some chronological facts for you. Triumphal entry, and, and here's a fact that we can talk about later. Any theology nerds in here? Okay, we can discuss this one later. I'm, I'm not going to go into it. Um, triumphal entry, Palm Sunday has always been on Sunday, but there's some really good uh, facts and research that would say it, it actually happened on Monday. But we'll get into that later. We'll just assume for now it was on Sunday. Cleansing of the temple took place on Monday. Tuesday's controversies with Jewish leaders. But Wednesday, Jesus had a day of rest, or you slide everything down. Thursday, preparation for the Passover. Friday was his trial and crucifixion. Saturday, Jesus rests in the tomb. And Sunday, Jesus raises from the dead. So here we are in the last few days of Jesus' life. Now, granted, we're going to take from now until Easter to preach through the last week of Jesus' life. But here's where we are. We have to understand the weight of what's taking place here. That Jesus is walking into Jerusalem for this celebration of Passover. And, and here's just a couple things, I think, as we kind of wrap our mind, what's happening, what's taking place. The, just some, some uh, things to notice. The first one is we have to understand what the significance of Passover is and what's taking place. Because the best numbers that we can find was there's approximately 2 million Jews in Jerusalem at this time. 2 million Jews. So we see Exodus 11, Exodus chapter 11 through 13, what Passover means, that this was the last plague um, that, that God sent because the Egyptians were holding the Israelites and God said, no, you're going to let the people go. We're going to take care of this. And the last plague was the invention of the Passover, right? That, that take this lamb, um, sacrifice it, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost or else the firstborn is going to be killed. So when the Passover, when the Spirit of the Lord passed over 
Egypt, the only children, the only firstborns that survived were the ones that had blood on the doorframe. And so we see this taking place every year that the Jews would gather around Jerusalem. Ten years after, this is just crazy, ten years after this, uh, it, was, uh, it was reported that 260,000 lambs were brought into Jerusalem for Passover. 260. So that's where we get the number of 2 million because you could have up to 10 people underneath one umbrella of a lamb. I know I'm nerding out for you, but this is just blowing my mind. 260,000 times 10, 2.6 million. So they're taking some off about 600,000 for 10 years earlier, which would mean 2 million people are taking place with Passover in Jerusalem. So when Jesus is walking into this town, this is no little laissez-faire thing. There are 2 million Jews here. Two million that should know their Old Testament. They should know the prophecies. They should know what's taking place with this guy, Jesus. Key word here being should. Another observation that we see from this story that we'll kind of unpack a little bit more was that for the first time in Jesus' ministry, he let his praises reign. That every time Jesus would heal someone, that a miracle would take place, what would he always say? Hey, don't, don't tell anyone, keep it quiet. Don't, it's not time yet. But this is the first time that we see Jesus go, no, no, it's good, man. I'm going to ride this cult in. People are going to go crazy. Pharisees are going to get mad, and they're going to, Jesus is going to say, no. No, it doesn't matter. And here's why. If you want to flip over to John 11 real quick, I want to show you what's taking place in, in all that's happening here in, in Jerusalem. John chapter 11. We're going to be flipping a lot this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. Um, but I'm, I know that this is going to be a little heavy on the historical side for a minute, but we've just got to get uh, the framework for what's happening here. John chapter 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 55. John 11, verse 55. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem. We now know many, two million before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus knew and he's told his disciples over and over and over again, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. The whole time they're thinking, when we get to Jerusalem, he's going to overthrow Rome and the rain is going to start. Not like chocolate rain, but like rain rule power is going to happen. So when they get there, when they're walking into Jerusalem, Jesus is going, no, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. So for the Pharisees to get him, for them to be arrested, he goes, no, no, this is all part of the Lord's work. This is all God's will let the praises reign. I'm going to get as popular as possible because I have to get arrested because I have to get betrayed because I have to die or else there's no punishment for your sin. The last thing that I want us to see real quick um, is to, to remember the prophecies. Again, if we're dealing with two million Jews, they should know the prophecies. And here's what I mean. Zechariah 9.9 says it this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So when Jesus sends his disciples into this town to basically steal a colt, which is just awesome to me, um, go, go take it. If anyone says anything, tell them the Lord needs it. Um, don't do that at most today, just so you know. Don't walk in back. Sorry, man, the Lord needs this burrito, so I got to go. Actually, do it. Tell them, tell them you're not from the branch, so you go to some other church, but let me know what happens. It'd be awesome. Uh, so walks in, steals this donkey. The moment Jesus says, hey, disciples, go get a colt, they should have gone, wait a second. I've heard this before. I, I know this prophecy. I, I know what's taking place here. When he, the whole time he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Isaiah 53 should have been popping in their mind. I, I know what's taking place here, but they missed it. So we talked two weeks ago that the crowd around Jesus missed it when he pursued Zacchaeus. We talked last week that the wicked servant missed it. And so we're still running into this, I would say, not triumphal injury, but humble injury because all those around him still missed it. And how easy is it for, for maybe just me, I'm not going to say us, how easy is it for me to look at these guys and go, gosh, y'all are just idiots. You, you missed it. How did you, with all this miracles taking place, with Lazarus coming back from the dead, from even the cult, from every detail taking place as it was prophesied that it would, how did you miss it? But you know that dumb cliche that every time you point, there's three fingers pointing back at you? So am, am I missing it? I mean, is this whole blind spot, you don't know that you have a blind spot because it's blind? So are we studying scripture as a church? And are we missing what God's doing in our midst? Because more than anything, this is creating a framework for us that it is possible for us to be near Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be a part of the gathering of Jesus and still miss him. That creates a whole new category for us that it is there possible for that to take place. And man, I'm just to be honest, that's created a fear in me it's created a fear in me personally, in us trying to lead this church, us dreaming about what would a network of churches look like. It's created a fear in me that if we're not careful, we can miss it because there are all these people that are constantly following Jesus and they miss it. But there's some encouragement here for us because there's a few, there's a few in this crowd that didn't miss it. So what we're going to see as we're kind of dissecting this text today is that the reason they mix, missed it was they were focusing on the wrong thing. That if our focus is off, then, then we've missed it. If our tunnel vision is too narrow, then we've missed it. Or if it's too broad, that we've missed it. So we're going to look at different situations here and see what they were focusing on that allowed them to miss it. And the first focus that, that allowed them to miss Jesus, I would argue, were the traditions. The tradition. So it was nothing uncommon for these Jews to come into Jerusalem at this time every single year, do the same thing, the same ritual. They would go through every single step that they'd done the year before, the year before that their parents had done the previous generation, that their grandparents had done the previous generation, make, going all the way back thousands of years to the original Passover. This had been happening over and over and over again. So had it almost turned into a duty for them. Let's just go, let's get it done, let's get back because I've, I've got other things to take care of. That it turned into a traditional thing. I mean, here's, here's what's crazy. 
When they would come into Jerusalem, they would go purchase their lamb if they didn't come with one. And that lamb would live with them for three or four, about four days uh, until Passover, until that Friday when then they would slaughter the lamb. So this thing was supposed to become like a pet to them, like a beloved to them, so that they would see the pain, the agony of what their sin causes. So you read this and you study this and we point pictures going, there's no way this just turned into tradition for them. There's no way that this was just a natural thing that they did every year and it was just, but we do it with Christmas every year, right? I mean, if, if we, we do it with Easter every year, right? Like, I'm, and I'm not poking and just kind of take this with a grain of salt, but when, when did Easter clothes get more important than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? When did pastels become the thing that we talk about at Easter? God forbid, when did the bunny become Jesus Christ? Easter bunnies. Like, what is happening here when that has become more important because we've fallen into this tradition? Yeah, 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 I go to church on Easter. We sing, we talk. I might even give a little extra, take communion. It's, it's good. It's the same thing with Christmas. We've got this tradition and this tradition and this tradition. One of our traditions is we go to Christmas Eve service together. And then we go home and we unwrap presents because we always get pajamas the night before Christmas so that when we wake up and we take pictures the next morning, we actually have good pajamas on instead of holy ones. Anyone else do that? Yeah, you have one pair of holy sweatpants and you ruin Christmas that year and traditions change. That's what happened to us, at least. I don't know where your tradition started from, but that's, you see my boxers in one picture and that's the end of the world. But, but we do this. So as we're pointing, how do they miss this? We have to realize, church, that we have the same traditions that possibly keep us from seeing Jesus. That are we just going through the motions? I mean, we can even take it down to a micro scale. Is your attendance here this morning more traditional, a ritual, or is it for the growth and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Or are we missing it? The second thing that we have to see, and we kind of mentioned earlier, uh, th- there's just a level of hype that's taking place as they're walking into Jerusalem. Now listen, two million people are here for this, so word is spreading like crazy. The best number that I can find, is the, the crowd following Jesus in to Jerusalem was approximately 250,000 people. Okay, just let that set in for a minute. 250,000 people were walking in, were laying down their coats, we're cutting branches off the limbs and laying palms down for Jesus to come in. 250,000. Now we can just kind of see that, that if people are excited about something, we get excited about something, right? If your friends love something, if there's enough hype about anything, for example, two weeks ago, my MC blessed me and my son with tickets to Atlanta United. Fantastic. I don't know anything about soccer but I was screaming and chanting and trying to keep up with the clap cheers that were taking place, and it was the best time ever. I don't particularly like soccer, but there was a, there was a section that they were like, flag were flying and beer was flying, and like, those guys are awesome. They hyped up the entire stadium. So for that 90 minutes, I was the biggest Atlanta United fan ever. I don't understand five stripes and traditions, and I don't understand anything about soccer. I had to ask Rob and Connor, like, hey, this happened. Tell me that rule, because that made no sense to me. But for that 90 minutes, I was going crazy. 
So is there a possibility then that the hype that brought in this crowd to Jesus is still happening today? There's a hype about what God is doing in other people's life, not yours, but because you see God moving, because you see crowds forming, we, we get sucked into this thing, that we miss it because our focus is on the hype, not on Jesus Christ. Now this is going to sound critical, and I don't mean it to sound critical, but, but you can do with it what you want. There are churches in our day that are built on hype. That, that's all they're built on. If we can have the right music, the right show, the right lights, the right band, create this right environment, then we can create a movement. It's not built on Jesus. It's not built on his word. It's built on hype. It's built on the show, the big dance. It's built on hype. So there's, there's a category for us then that we see from these guys is that they actually missed out on Jesus because they were following the hype, not him. So, so maybe let's even get a little more personable here. 250,000, there's even a small crowd, 50 to 100,000, that had eyewitnessed some of Jesus' miracles that were taking place. They had seen Lazarus come out of that tomb. They had seen blind men receive sight. They had seen with their own eyes the lame walk. If Jesus can do that for him, then he can do it for me. I just got to stay close to Jesus so I can get what I want. Now, if I had to put my thumb on just one thing that this generation wrestles with, this church, not us specifically, but the big C church in our time wrestles with, we just want Jesus' stuff. We've seen him do miracles for others, and we think we deserve that too. We've seen God redeem other relationships, and we think we deserve that too. We've seen God save people from cancer, and we think that we deserve that too. So, so we never want the miracle, or we never want Jesus himself. We just want what Jesus can offer us. We just want the miracles that come with this. So, so this crowd, Matthew would tell us, is screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. Y'all know this, any church history, Hosanna in the highest. Literally, this means save now, save now. But they weren't screaming for salvation from their sins. They're screaming that they would save them from Rome and that they would save them from their own troubles. So you could see the chasm here. Save us from Rome. We don't want to be under Rome's rule anymore. You did it before with the Egyptians and the Israelites. Do it again. Or on the other side, you're going, uh, you saved this guy from lameness. You saved this guy from death. You saved this guy from blindness. Do it again. Save me now. But this whole middle part is why Jesus actually came was to save us from our sins, and they're not crying out for that. They're not saying, save me from my depravity. They're going, no, give me what you owe me. Give me your stuff. Give me your miracles. Their focus was never on Jesus Christ. Their focus, their sole focus on what Jesus can offer them, what they can do for them. And listen, I've had more, and I've mentioned this before, more painful conversations around this topic than anything else. The people get involved with church, they come to church, they get an MCDNA, they grow up in church, they understand this, they think they understand this, and then one bad thing happens to them. And, and I'm going to be honest, I mean, some of these things are horrendous, death, divorce, depression. I mean, I, I'm not trying to belittle by no means what they're going through. It is real and it is awful. But their focus was on what Jesus can do for them, not what he already did for them, so then they get frustrated. 
and they say, listen, what kind of loving God would let this take place? That I saw miracle after miracle after miracle, but it's not happening for me, therefore I'm out. Jesus is not a good God. He's not a loving God or else he wouldn't let this happen. Their focus was never on the saving work of Jesus Christ. The fact that they can call themselves a Christian didn't come free. It came because this humble injury coming into Jerusalem for death. But because they didn't get the miracle they expected, they're out. That their focus was on what Jesus can offer, not Jesus himself. The fourth focus that we see happens with the Pharisees. And, and this, is, this is a real one. Lord, tell them, excuse me, they didn't call him Lord. That was the wrong verse. That would never have happened. Excuse me. <clears throat> verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the cross said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop praising you, to stop singing to you. Why? Where was their focus? And oh my goodness, we could spend sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon on this. But if I could put it one word, their focus was on their pride. Their focus was on their pride, that, that everyone's eyes in this moment was off of them and were on to Jesus. They're going, listen, but listen, I, I've, I've done all this for you. I've, I've memorized scripture. I don't sin. I do all of this. I've changed my entire life. Why are people looking at you and not me? Tell them to stop it. Their pride just sucked in. They were jealous of the attention that Jesus was getting. They were jealous that Jesus got all that and said, teacher, tell them to stop. And I love Jesus' response. Even, even if I did, even if I did, the rocks are going to cry out. Brother, your pride has ran out. Now, there's four foci. Is that the right way to say that? In, nope. Okay. Are we with me? Focuses. Happy birthday, Caleb. Was foci right? Okay. Caleb might be one of the smartest guys I know, and it's his birthday, so he's going to be my fact checker over there. Caleb said it's right. It's his birthday. You can argue with him. Foci. There was four main focuses that these guys were focusing other than Jesus, but in the rare occasion, the disciples get it right. In this rare moment, the disciples who, for all intents and purposes, have screwed up almost every bit of everything they've done, in this moment, get it right. Focus on verse 37 with me. Luke 20 verse, nope, Luke 19 verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So let's look at the first one real quick before we get into peace in heaven. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what they're saying. And we've had this conversation with Peter. Who do you say that I am? Well, some say this, some say this. Who do you say that I am? I think you're the king. I think you are Hosea. I think you're the son of God. That's who I think you are. So for them proclaiming that the king is here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord that you are the King Jesus and God has sent you here to be king, to rule, and to reign. 
We talked about a lot last week, what is the name that we call Jesus? Because that will give us the, the parameters of our heart. When we pray, what is the name that we get to Jesus? Because we saw that Judas gave the name Rabbi. So do we just call him a teacher like the Pharisees do? Do we call him the king? The king is here. The salvation is here. And I, I wish we could dive into that, but I want to spend the majority of our next five minutes here. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, we mentioned earlier about this idea of peace, that, that we just want peace, that we long for peace. Some of us have been in family awkward drama where we just want it to end. We want to be the peacemakers. Let's stop fighting for a little bit. Some of us are just un, unhappy with our season of life, that, that for this season we just want peace because I'm, I'm torn in this direction and that direction. I don't know where this peace comes from. Some of us, maybe it's money. Some of us, it's you just want to be done with school, that, that you think when school is done, when I get a job, then peace will come. We're, we're constantly pursuing peace. But there's a key that the disciples are letting into that we need to look at and examine before God because what they're saying is that apart from Jesus Christ, peace will never happen. That selfishly, and again, I just want to be real because I, I get this too, but selfishly we focus in so much so on our own sins and our own struggles, but we never get to the root of that peace. We never keep whining this thing to death, but why do I feel this way? But why do I feel this way? But why do I feel this way? And it takes us all the way back to Genesis. That when sin entered the world, there was no longer peace between us and God. Because of the sin that has taken place, there can no longer be peace between us and God. We are then, at that point, enemies of God, as Ephesians would say. That we are, by nature, children of wrath. That this unpeacefulness that we feel, this unsettlingness that, that the world is running to every single thing to fill their cup is this idea that there's just no peace for us because there's no peace between us and God, the way that we were designed to live. Because you see, peace is always that fact. Peace means that something is not working the way that it should. That things are designed to work in harmony, and when there's no peace, the harmony is broken. And so when we have no peace, something is out of alignment here. But, but we wrestle with this and run to this and, and forget over the fact of what the disciples are screaming. Peace in heaven. Because of this king, because Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to die, now we have a chance at peace. This doesn't mean Rome. This doesn't mean miracles. This doesn't mean any of that. Because if Jesus dies as king, then he's paying the penalty for us, and now we have peace with God the Father. So just a couple verses for us to see this take place. Flip over to Colossians 1. I want you guys to see this one, and then I'll just read the other ones for us real fast. Then Colossians 1. Colossians 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. Colossians 1, pick it up in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
So the reason that we have peace with God the Father is because the blood that Jesus spilt on the cross. Romans 5 would say it this way, since we have, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18 would put it this way. And if you're writing this down, write this one down, read and study this one on your own time this week. This will blow your mind. Ephesians 2, pick it up, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made us both, excuse me, iPad, for has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, dividing the wall of hostility. So this wall of hostility was because sin had come into the world. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, so listen, listen, Here, here's where I'm going to try to land the plane with us this morning. What is our focus? Where has gotten us off kilter? Why, if we point one finger to the apostles, to the two million there, what are we missing? So I mentioned earlier that the lambs were brought in, they were ushered in because there were 260,000 lambs brought in for the Passover. And what these lambs represented was the blood spilt, was to cover, was to atone for their sin. These lambs would be brought in on Sunday and Monday. I mean, everyone would have a chance to pick the lamb, to bring it home, and then they would slaughter the lamb on Friday. When did Jesus Christ come into town? Sunday or Monday? So this triumphal entry was a humble entry because he was, a, as Isaiah would say, a lamb being brought to the slaughter. So as all this celebration was going on, here is Jesus, what was simultaneously happening were all these lambs coming into Jerusalem to be slaughtered for their sins, and they're missing the most important lamb, Jesus Christ. The one that would end all sacrifices, that would end all atonement, that it would all take place on him. So here's how we miss it. If we focus on anything other than what Christ has accomplished for us, we've missed it. If we focus on what he's done for us, what he will do for us, for as far as miracles go, we've missed it. If we focus on traditions, we have to be here, we've missed it. If we focus on the hype, we've missed it. If we focus on Jesus coming in as the lamb to be slaughtered, that the only way we can be reconciled to God, the only way that we can have peace with God it's through Jesus Christ. It's why Paul, in a masterful sentence that I've chosen to forget, all things except Christ and Christ crucified. Nothing else matters. Whether he shows up for me again, it, it doesn't even matter. I've chosen to forget all things but Christ and Christ crucified. Because of that one act, I now have peace with God that was never going to happen apart from that that all the lambs to be slaughtered, that all the traditions that were set up in the Old Testament were just band-aids on a gushing wound. But now it is finished. It has been finalized. That peace only comes through the cross. 
So church, is that our focus? Is that what we read from this story? Is our focus only on what would have happened if Christ didn't come? What what would have happened if Christ didn't die for our sins? Would we ever have peace with God? Or maybe even take a step back. Does it even matter, peace with God? But does does it really wrestle with us? Is it hard for us to understand that we were born in sin and unless something takes place that we can never be in right standings with God? Does that even matter? What is our focus on? Because if we get this, if we understand that peace, we have found peace, then crazy things start to happen. Like when the early apostles were let out of prison and they're rejoicing because they could get beaten for the sake of Jesus' name. And they leave prison after getting whooped and they're singing and praising. Thank God that he counted us worthy enough to suffer for him. Crazy things like Paul says in Philippians, it's not a verse that should go on our face. And I've learned to be content in all things, whether in, one, or whether in tons or whether in none. I've learned to be happy in everything because Christ is all that matters. Christ's peace is what gives me strength. Then we start to read all the martyrdom that took place of the early disciples, how they were joyful to die for the cause of Christ. It's because they understood where their peace came from. They weren't looking in their joy, their satisfaction, their tranquility, their happiness in anything else other than the peace that's already been bought by Jesus Christ. So as we, over this next couple months, start looking at the last week of Jesus' life, you're going to see these teachings start to ramp up a little bit. The the sense of urgency in Jesus' voice and his stories and his examples start to ramp up because he's desperate for us to know and understand the peace that he brings. But do we get it? So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and, and we're going to have time of communion as believers in this room. If you're not yet a believer, we're so glad that you're here. Um, but we just ask that you wait. You don't partake in communion until you're a believer. And I can explain more of that as if you have questions. But, but here's what I want us to do. Corinthians would tell us that as we, before we take communion to examine our hearts, and here's what I'm asking. Examine our hearts this morning. What is our focus? What is our motivation for following Christ? What is our, is it the traditions and the miracles and the hype, or is it because we were once far off aliens, enemies to God, but through Christ on the cross, we have now been made new creations. We are sons and daughters because Jesus is our peace. So let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we're humbled the fact that, that you knew in that moment as people were singing Hosanna, as they were laying down cloaks on the road and playing down palms and celebrating and singing over you. Brother, you, you, you knew that the majority of those praises were false. that they thought you were coming to overthrow the government, that you were coming to rescue them from their trials, but they missed out on the fact that there was no peace between them and God, and you were coming for that. That you are our peace. 
And there's no right circumstance or, or certain situation that is going to bring us peace with God. It's only through you and your death on the cross will bring us peace with God. And Jesus, as you were riding on this coal, as you're riding into Jerusalem, you know that you could have stopped it. That, that you didn't have to do this. But for the glory of your Father, you did. And so, Father, would you speak to us this morning? Where are we finding our peace? Where are we running to for tranquility and satisfaction and rest? And if it's anything else other than you and the blood that you spilt and the death that you defeated, would you remind us of that? Would you draw us back to your peace? Because you are our peace. Through you, we had no reconciliation. There's no way we could be in right standing with God, but we are because of you. And when we dwell on that, and when we think on that and consider that, there, there's hardly words to express the appreciation for what you did. There's hardly words to express that I, I don't know how to sing it, I don't know how to pray it, I don't know how to thank you for becoming our peace because it costed you everything. It took your entire life. That we were once enemies, but God. So church, let us examine our hearts this morning. What is our focus? Is it the peace that Jesus Christ offers? Or is it something else? So when you're ready, communion will be open. Amen.